0: Hi everyone. Just a quick message before we start today's episode. The American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine recently announced a call for papers for an upcoming special issue on critical care. Critical Care, an evolving area in pulmonary medicine, addresses care for patients facing life-threatening illnesses due to disease or injury. You can learn more about the journal's formatting guidelines and find a link to submit your paper by visiting atsjournals.org promo. That's atsjournals.org promo. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode of Out of the Blue. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: So hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, my name is John Fleetham. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Joshua Metlay and Dr. Grant Walter, who are the co-chairs of the subcommittee that recently developed uh, the ATS guidelines, Diagnosis and Treatment of Adults with Community Acquired Pneumonia, which was published in the October 1st edition of the Blue Journal. Uh, Dr. Metlay is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, where it's currently 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Dr. Water is Professor of Medicine at the University of Western Australia in Perth, We're currently 10pm in the evening. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. Josh, if I could start with you. First, why did the ATS decide to develop clinical <clears throat> practice guidelines on, on this topic at this time?
0: Well, uh, community pneumonia remains a, a major cause of uh, morbidity and mortality worldwide, uh, but uh, particularly uh, in the US where this guideline was targeted. Uh, and we live in a world in which there's uh, an incredible pace of new information that comes out. And professional societies like ATS uh, and IDSA, which did this with them jointly, really perceive the value in bringing people with deep knowledge of these topics together to sift through the evidence uh, and be able to admit, uh, uh, administer recommendations uh, about how to interpret the available evidence and how to treat patients uh, with community-acquired pneumonia. This has been an ongoing condition Uh, It's been more than 10 years since we last did it, uh, but it is an incredibly valuable and I think a highly used uh, guideline document uh, that really helps providers in a range of settings uh, make evidence-based decisions about how to treat patients with pneumonia. Thanks.
1: Now Grant, who who developed these guidelines? Uh, What was your methodology? And how did you come up with the, the 16 questions?
2: So, uh, the guidelines are are a long-standing agreement between the um, Infectious Diseases Society of America and the American Thoracic Society. Um, They are constituted by um, a panel um, of equal representation from um, IDSA and ATS. Uh, In in our case, um, uh, something like um, 14-odd people on the panel. Um, To get on the panel, um, you, you have to have no major conflicts of interest with respect to farmer, um, and there was quite a prolonged process of nomination and screening um, to get on. Um, equally, uh, we had uh, a methodologist on the panel and a trainee methodologist, um, Ann Long, who did uh, a large part of the work for these guidelines. And having said that, um, I'd also like to point out that you know during review, many professional societies also um, had an opportunity to, to look at the guidelines and provide us with input, and I think, um, Josh uh, and I uh, had literally hundreds of um, comments to respond to in the process. So there's been an enormous amount of um, input into these guidelines. Um, In terms of our process, uh, by agreement between um, IDSA and ATS, we have to follow the GRADE format, um, which is a new format for these guidelines. Um, People who are used to the traditional sort of chatty, Uh, type guidelines with a lot of expert opinion, Um, grade really requires uh, questions to be put in um, PICO format, which really means answering a question in terms of um, uh, which is better, A or B.
0: And
2: while that is uh, in some ways quite limiting, um, in other ways, it also makes you uh, adhere to a very strict evidence-based process. Um, And so what we... Uh, did was uh, we developed the PICOs, which I'll talk about in a second. Then there was the systemic uh, literature review uh, and the process of collating that evidence then um, to format the recommendation. As far as how we developed the PICOs, essentially the panel met. Um, first time we met was uh, in uh, around October 2015. Um, we'd collected a whole lot of ideas. I think we probably started with a list of Uh, maybe as many as 40 or 50 Pico questions for the group, Uh, and then we whittled those down to uh, the ones that we have. And that was based really um, on uh, a selection process for what was most important, given the the limits that we had in terms of it. It had to be small enough that it was actually doable, because there's a large amount of work in doing these reviews. Uh, there's a limit to the size of the guideline that can come out in print. Um, And so, ultimately, uh, what we have is kind of a trade-off between uh, what everybody wanted and what what was feasible. And um, I'm sure there are questions that um, haven't been answered. Um, And there's going to be plenty of opportunity in the coming years for others to uh, add PICOs to this guideline.
1: So Josh, just before we get to the recommendations, can you briefly describe the, your definition of community-acquired pneumonia and the typical patient these guidelines are up to apply to?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we decided to adopt a fairly rigid definition of community-acquired pneumonia in large part so that we could map this to an evidence base, which also uses typically pretty specific definitions. And so that definition are adults, 18 and older, who have a community acquired, uh, so not in the hospital, infection of the lung, which is supported by radiographic evidence of a a pneumonia infection. And that really is the definition that is typically used in the studies that we're gonna now review that led to the guideline formation. The the guideline focuses on, on patients in the United States who have not recently completed any foreign travel, especially to regions with emerging respiratory pathogens. And the guideline also focuses on adults who do not have an immunocompromising condition, uh, such as patients actively receiving cancer chemotherapy, patients infected with HIV, uh, with suppressed CD4 counts in solid organ or bone marrow transplant recipients.
1: So let's go through the 16 recommendations. Um, I wonder, with each question, could you give the recommendation, the strength of the recommendation, uh, the quality of the evidence, and a brief rationale for the recommendation? Perhaps Grant, I could start with you. The the first question asked was, in adults with community-acquired pneumonia, should gram stain and culture of low respiratory secretions be obtained at the time
2: of diagnosis? Okay, so uh, this is a multi-part, really, recommendation. Um, uh, Overall, we recommend not obtaining gram stain and culture, uh, sputum gram stain and culture routinely in adults with CAP managed in the outpatient setting. That's a strong recommendation with very low quality evidence. Uh, we recommend obtaining pre-treatment ground stain and culture of respiratory secretions in adults with CAP managed in the hospital setting um, who are either classified as having severe CAP, and there's a separate table in the document around that. Um, that is uh, a strong recommendation with very low quality of evidence. Uh, we also recommend obtaining sputum cultures if they uh, um, a bit, if the patient is being empirically treated for MRSA or uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa. It's a strong recommendation with very low quality evidence. Uh, We recommend it if they've previously had MRSA or or Pseudomonas, especially um, if that's been a prior respiratory tract infection. That's a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence. Um, And in patients who were hospitalized and received parental antibiotics, uh, whether during the hospitalization event or not, uh, in the last 90 days. And that's a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence. Um, I think it's fair to say this is probably one of the most contested um, areas where we we struggled as a panel to come to a consensus. There is um, uh, two sets of um, belief uh, around this question. There are certainly many clinicians um, uh, who firmly believe that you should get sputum cultures on everybody because otherwise um, you can't tell what you're treating and uh, you can't narrow the spectrum of antibiotics from an antibiotic stewardship point of view. On the other hand, if you go to the evidence, there's absolutely um, almost no evidence that doing sputum cultures improves patient outcomes. Um, And what evidence there is suggests that clinicians largely uh, ignore uh, the results, never narrow the spectrum of antibiotic therapy. uh, And uh, they don't particularly help you understand the local etiology um, in general, so uh, on balance, um, we really, and this will come up again in the guidelines uh, multiple times, what we've tried to reach is a balance between um, the previous guideline, uh, which introduced healthcare associated pneumonia, which uh, while a good idea at the time has ultimately turned out to be a bit of a disaster in terms of massive overtreatment with broad spectrum antibiotics, So, what we've tried to do is um, encourage clinicians to do more sputum cultures in the setting where they are giving uh, broader spectrum antibiotic therapy in order that they can validate that they do actually have those pathogens present um, while still respecting the the tradition that um, it's, it's largely patient choice, sorry, it's largely physician choice, but we didn't want to mandate sputum cultures. Uh, simply because there, there was no evidence really that that um, would improve patient outcomes.
1: So Josh, the next question is, uh, should blood cultures be obtained at the time of diagnosis?
0: So this set of recommendations is going to very much parallel the recommendations around sputum, gram stain and culture. Uh, we recommend not obtaining blood cultures in adults uh, with CAP who are managed in the outpatient setting. And this is a strong recommendation with very low quality of evidence we suggest not routinely obtaining blood cultures in adults with CAP managed in the hospital setting. This is a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence. And we do recommend obtaining pre-treated blood cultures in adults with CAP managed in the hospital setting who are either classified as severe CAP, uh, that's a strong recommendation with low quality of evidence, or are being empirically treated for MRSA or Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that's a strong recommendation with very low quality of evidence or were previously infected with MRSA or Pseudomonas aeruginosa, especially those with prior respiratory tract infections, that's a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence, or were hospitalized and received parenteral antibiotics, whether during the hospitalization event or not in the last 90 days, and that's a conditional recommendation and very low quality of evidence. So here again, there are no high quality studies that have demonstrated that obtaining blood cultures actually improves outcomes in patients with community-acquired pneumonia. There are some uh, observational studies that received a lot of attention uh, a number of years ago that linked uh, uh, routinely obtaining blood cultures with improved outcomes for patients with community-acquired pneumonia. But I think there's some increasing concern that some of these studies are confounded by other process elements, and even by some endogenous characteristics of the patients, which may have confounded the association between blood cultures uh, and improved outcomes. the bloodline. In contrast, there actually are some evidence now for blood cultures, that outcomes can be worse if you obtain too many blood cultures. And this is because we have the problem of contaminants with blood cultures. And there have been some studies that have shown, for example, increased length of stay for patients who have blood cultures obtained in part because they are occasionally having um, staph contaminants in the blood cultures, which are leading to prolonged or unnecessary courses of antibiotics. Uh, And so here again, the, the settings in which we do recommend blood cultures are really to help support ultimately the narrowing of therapy for patients in which there are concerns for atypical pathogens, not atypical pathogens, uh, for other pathogens like MRSA or Pseudomonas. Uh, and, and the concern is that if we don't have any microbiological data, we may commit them to long courses of unnecessary antibiotics. We also recognize that severe CAP, particularly in the ICU is a serious condition and additional microbiological information can always be helpful because we recognize that having adequate therapy for whatever the pathogen is can be life-saving.
1: Good, so staying with diagnosis, um, Grant, should Legionella and pneumococcal urinary antigen testing be performed at the time of diagnosis? Uh,
2: So our recommendation is that um, we suggest not routinely testing urine for pneumococcal antigen in adults with CAP. That's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence, Um, except in adults with severe CAP, which again is a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. We equally suggest not routinely testing urine for legionella antigen in adults with CAP, which is a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence, except in cases where epidemiological factors such as association with a legionella outbreak or recent travel um, indicates a higher likelihood of legionella and that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Uh, And in adults with severe CAP, we also recommend testing for legionella, which is again a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Um, the, the, for pneumococcal antigen, the reality is that it still remains the most common bacterial pathogen in CAP and there's never a situation in which you wouldn't empirically cover for it. Um, and because Legionella, because um, pneumococcal antigen doesn't tell you antibiotic sensitivity, um, it doesn't really have an opportunity to therefore change empiric therapy when, when the main concern might be uh, an antibiotic resistant pneumococcus. So. In the usual setting, it really has limited ability to change management and that uh, is is what essentially the literature shows. There's really an absence of literature indicating that it's a useful test in terms of improving patient outcomes. For Legionella, urinary antigen, um, that's even more limited um, given that it really only detects Legionella serogroup uh, one with a bit of cross-reactivity with six. There are many, many other strains of Legionella which is why we have included in this uh, recommendation around sampling using um, molecular diagnostic techniques um, if you suspect legionella. And for the the same reasons um, uh, as pneumococcal urinary antigen, we really um, recommend it only in the setting of severe CAP or uh, the the setting of a possible epidemic.
1: So Josh, in in the final question of the diagnosis, uh, should a respiratory sample uh, be tested for influenza vaccine at, at the time of diagnosis?
0: A test for influenza virus at the time of diagnosis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our, our recommendation is that uh, when influenza viruses are circulating in the community, we recommend uh, testing for influenza with a rapid influenza molecular assay, uh, for example, an influenza nucleic acid amplification test, which is much preferred over a rapid influenza diagnostic test like an antigen test. And this is a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. So um, here we really modeled our our guideline recommendation on the recently released uh, influenza treatment guidelines uh, because pneumonia due to influenza is a really important uh, part of the spectrum of influenza illness, and we wanted the guidelines to be consistent. Um, I think there are three key parts to this recommendation. Um, First, uh, influenza is a major pathogen in community-acquired pneumonia, and we know that prompt diagnosis and treatment is very beneficial. Uh, And so we wanted people to be on the lookout for influenza and to consider, we'll get to this later, treating influenza when there's evidence that it's present. The second is to emphasize, as as many have come to realize, that the newer generation of nucleic antigen detection tests are really far superior uh, in sensitivity especially and are really much more preferred if you can do them uh, at the point of care. And the third is uh, uh, in the patients who are being hospitalized, clearly, There are additional infection control issues here. And so we wanted to point out that many patients coming in with pneumonia could have influenza and that might have some important infection control implications for how patients are, uh, uh, you know, where they're put in the hospital and what infection control procedures are in place.
1: So all the next questions relate to management. And Grant, if I can start with you. Uh, The first question is, should serum procalcitonin plus clinical judgment or, or just clinical judgment alone be used to withhold initiation of antibiotic treatment?
2: Um, so this is a, a new recommendation from the guideline. Um, we recommend that empiric antibiotic therapy should be initiated in adults with clinically suspected and radiologically confirmed cap, regardless of the initial serum, pro level. And um, that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. Um, uh, to be clear, this is a guideline about patients who already have community-acquired pneumonia confirmed radiologically. We're not talking about p- patients here who may or may not have CAP uh, because they're presenting with some kind of respiratory tract illness. So once pneumonia is confirmed, there really is no evidence to suggest uh, that any test is sensitive uh, or specific enough to rule in or rule out a bacterial um, cause at onset. Uh, And procalcitonin included, there are plenty of false negatives um, with low procalcitonins. And the only study that has even looked at this um, suggested that uh, in around half the cases, clinicians still ignored the low proglycetone and and gave antibiotics. So even though we know that patients have viral pneumonia uh, and they certainly don't need antibiotics, at the moment on a risk versus benefit basis, uh, you, you have to treat empirically with antibiotic therapy until you can confirm the pathogens.
1: Can I just ask you, because this was new to me, how how widely is serum procalcitonin measured at the moment? Is this done quite widely?
2: Uh, I think it's very patchy. Um, In some areas it's used an awful lot um, and has become uh, very common to see it used in many EDs in in other settings. Uh, it's not used at all. Um, I think it's often, uh, what it's, it's one of those tests that there becomes a local champion for it and then it gets introduced into a hospital and it becomes part of the culture. A bit like C-reactive protein. Um, uh, neither are particularly useful, um, but they, 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 they get measured. So uh, I, I know that this is one in which there will be a lot of um, interest. Uh, I think it's also you know fair to say that we, uh, the data for procalcitonin is strongest in reducing duration of antibiotic therapy. But in all of those studies, um, the, the duration is uh, you know, well over a week, um, which is well beyond what we would recommend as normal therapy. So again, uh, we, we don't um, see a role really for empiric uh, procalcitonin measurement.
1: Good, thanks.
2: That's something I learned from these guidelines.
1: Now, just staying in this, the same thing, should a, a clinical prediction rule for prognosis plus clinical judgment or just clinical judgment alone be used to determine inpatient versus outpatient treatment location?
0: So uh, our recommendation is that in addition to clinical judgment, of course, clinical judgment is always involved in these decisions. We recommend that clinicians use a validated clinical prediction rule for prognosis, preferentially the pneumonia severity index, which is also known as the PSI, and that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality evidence over the CURB-65, which is a tool which is based on confusion, urea level, respiratory rate, blood pressure, and age greater than 65. And that's recommendation for the CURB-65 is a conditional recommendation with lower quality of evidence, using either of them to determine the need for hospitalization in adults diagnosed with CAP. So a couple points here. First of all, um, there's strong evidence that using a, a safe and effective decision aid can help us increase the proportion of patients who are managed in the outpatient setting which has the potential to decrease unnecessary variability in admission rates, high costs, and keep people out of the hospital safely, but the decision aids are incredibly helpful. There's actually some very strong um, randomized controlled trial data in support of using the PSI for that purpose, uh, and that is why we were able to give it uh, a strong recommendation. Uh, In contrast, uh, the data in support of the CURVE-65 is not as strong. We don't have randomized trials in that sense, and so we provided a conditional recommendation Finally, I just want to note that obviously clinical severity is not the only consideration in determining the need for hospital admission. There are a variety of other medical and psychosocial contraindications to outpatient therapy, inability to maintain oral intake, history of substance abuse, cognitive impairment, impaired functional status that obviously have to go into the decision as well.
1: So Grant, uh, the next is a very similar question, uh, which is should a clinical prediction rule for prognosis plus clinical judgment versus clinical judgment alone. Be used to determine inpatient uh, general medical versus higher level of inpatient treatment intensity, such
2: as ICU step down or a telemetry unit. So, we recommend direct admission to an ICU for patients with mm-hmm. hypotension requiring vasopressors or respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. That's a strong recommendation with uh, low qu- quality of evidence. For patients not requiring vasopressors or mechanical ventilation, We suggest using the the IDSA ATS 2007 minor severity criteria together with clinical judgment to guide the need for higher levels of treatment intensity. And that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Uh, It's important here, as as Josh said, uh, that the PSI and and the CURB-65 were were never um, uh, validated and developed to determine, an ICU versus ward side of care. Uh, And when they've been studied, they have limitations. Really the only score out of all of those uh, that have been published that have been well validated are the uh, IDSA ATS 2007 um, criteria. Uh, That doesn't mean that they're perfect. Um, It is one of the areas that needs significant further research, but they are the, the, the best that we have. Um, but equally it's very important that we left clinical judgment needs to be a part of that. Um, There are issues that come up with patients uh, where they may not meet the criteria, but still have warning flags Uh, and individual hospitals as well, differ in their, um, critical care capacity and what they put into their intensive care units, their high dependency units. And that, that really needs also to be a site dependent decision. So uh, clinical judgment aided by the, IT, the IDSA ATS score.
1: So now we move on to, to treatment. Uh, Josh, the first question is, in the outpatient setting, which antibiotics are recommended for empiric treatment?
0: So uh, a long set of recommendations, let me go through them and then break <coughs> them out a little bit for everyone. Um, First, for healthy outpatient adults without comorbidities or risk factors for antibiotic-resistant pathogens, we recommend either amoxicillin, one gram, three times daily. That's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. Doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice daily. It's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Or macrolide, for example, azithromycin, 500 milligrams on the first day, that 250 milligrams daily. Or clarithromycin, 500 milligrams twice daily. Or clarithromycin extended release, 1,000 milligrams daily but only the, with the macrolides, only in areas with pneumococcal resistance to macrolides that has been measured at less than 25%. And that's a conditional recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. For outpatients with comorbidities, such as chronic heart, lung, liver, or renal disease, diabetes mellitus, alcoholism, malignancy, or asplenia, we recommend combination therapy, either amoxicillin clavulanate 500 milligram, 125, three times daily, or the higher dose amox clavi, 175 milligrams twice daily, or even the 2,000 milligram uh, twice daily dose, or a cephalosporin, cephodoxime 200 milligrams twice daily, or cefuroxime 500 milligrams twice daily, and one of those choices, and a macrolide, again, azithromycin, 500 milligrams on the first day, then 250 milligrams daily, or clarithromycin, 500 milligrams twice daily, or the extended release, 1,000 milligrams once daily, and that's a strong recommendation uh, with moderate quality of evidence for that combination. Or doxycycline is the second agent of the combination, 100 milligrams twice daily. And that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Or instead of the combination therapy for outpatients with comorbidities, there's a recommendation for a respiratory fluoroquinolone. That could be levofloxacin 750 milligrams daily, moxifloxacin 400 milligrams daily, or gemifloxacin 320 milligrams daily. And that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. So a bit of a mouthful, let me break this down. First, it's important to understand that in the outpatient setting, we don't have a huge amount of evidence and almost no evidence that really demonstrates superiority of one therapy over another. Uh, The trials tend to be small. Um, Using mortality as an endpoint in in outpatient uh, trials is really very limiting because there's very few deaths, obviously, fortunately, in the outpatient setting. And so therefore, we did also consider using data from inpatients to help guide our outpatient therapy uh, because there's a lot of observational data that would suggest that the spectrum of pathogens is quite similar, it's just that the severity is different. And so we did draw from a number of inpatient studies, particularly in terms of our recommendation around using a beta-lactam alone to help guide our recommendation for using amoxicillin uh, alone as an outpatient therapy. Um, I do wanna highlight some ways in which there are some departures uh, from prior guidelines. We did not give a strong recommendation for routine use of macrolide antibiotic as monotherapy for outpatients. And this really relates to the rising rates of resistance, particularly in the United States, uh, where nationally the rates of macrolide resistance has been reported to be over 30%. And there have been uh, several studies that have demonstrated treatment failures in the setting of macrolide resistance. So as we'll get to later, it really is important for, for local sites to continue to try to monitor and collect data on what their susceptibility patterns are because these are national guidelines, but they clearly need to be implemented locally. Um, The reason that we pivot and and provide recommendations for broader coverage in outpatients with comorbidities is really two reasons. First, uh, such patients are vulnerable to poor outcomes, so we really want to get it right from the start. Uh, They're more vulnerable uh, to pneumonia and more more likely to have bad outcomes. And second, many of the, the comorbidities that we cited are maybe not strong, but at least weak risk risk factors for potential resistant pathogens, uh, including haemophilus and Moraxella with beta-lactamase production, Staph aureus and some gram-negative bacilli. Uh, And so therefore, we favored having a a more extended spectrum outpatient regimen in those uh, cases. I do wanna point out that, uh, particularly for the uh, outpatients with comorbidities, we're giving you multiple treatment options We're not actually specifying a a preference in terms of which order, Um, but we recognize that people need to weigh other information in making these decisions. Uh, Specifically, the risk-benefit profile of these different drugs varies. Um, We pointed out uh, and continue to point out that there have been a number of adverse reports, particularly around the use of respiratory fluoroquinolones, uh, citing a website where you can get up-to-date information about some of these uh, adverse effects uh, related to, clostridium difficile infection, uh, uh, cardiac arrhythmias, tendon rupture, uh, vascular problems. And so clearly, we have to think about how to weigh that risk-benefit equation into choosing amongst these options. We thought those decisions need to be made at the individual patient level, so we provided the suite of options, but we want to highlight that the risks of these different drugs are not the same, and they need to be incorporated into the decision-making. And then lastly, I just want to point out that uh, particularly in the setting of the fact that many patients may have already completed a course of antibiotics for whatever by the time they show up and are diagnosed with community acquired pneumonia, we, we adopted the convention of prior guidelines and agree that you really shouldn't repeat the same class of antibiotics that somebody just had in the setting of continuing to, to, to be ill or particularly if they're getting worse.
1: Thank you. That's very clear. Now, the next four questions relate to patients, uh, inpatients. and start with you, Grant. Uh, Which antibiotic regimens are recommended for treatment uh, in patients without risk factors for the methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus or Pseudomonas aeruginosa?
2: So I'll break this down into its individual recommendations and just discuss each one as as I go. So in inpatient adults with non-severe CAP without risk factors for MRSA or Pseudomonas, (laughs) uh, we recommend uh, either a combination with a beta-lactam and a macrolide, uh, or uh, monotherapy with a respiratory fluoroquinolone, uh, meaning levofloxacin or, or moxifloxacin. Um, both are strong recommendations with a high quality of evidence. In patients who have contraindications to both macrolides and fluoroquinolones, we recommend combination therapy with uh, beta-lactam and doxycycline, and that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Uh, the reasons for um, these recommendations is uh, that again, as Josh pointed out, we don't really have uh, superiority trials. What we have is a, is a whole lot of um, me 2 equivalence trials. Uh, and so on the evidence base, uh, a beta lactam and, and a macrolide uh, all monotherapy with a fluoroquinolone appear to have uh, equal efficacy in, in the studies that are available. There is, however, a large amount of data um, supporting uh, better outcomes with uh, macrolides uh, that is not present um, uh, for doxycycline. Uh, it simply hasn't been studied with doxycycline, so we don't know. So it, that's why the uh, combination of a beta lactam and doxycycline was very much put um, uh, behind the combination of a beta lactam and, and a macrolide uh, in the non severe setting. Uh, and we, we do strongly believe that uh, the, the, the data uh, doesn't support monotherapy with a beta lactam. Uh, for inpatients with pneumonia. For patients with um, severe CAP without risk factors of MRSA or Pseudomonas, uh, we recommend um, a beta-lactam and a macrolide uh, or a beta-lactam and a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Uh, And both are strong. uh, The the first the beta-lactam with a a macrolide is a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence Whereas the beta-lactam with respiratory fluoroquinolone is a strong recommendation, but a low quality evidence. Uh, both of those options are, are we presented um, because there are not good trials showing superiority um, of uh, one over the other. However, the enormous weight of um, mostly observational data showing improved a- a- um, outcomes with a macrolide, um, including mortality, uh, led us to um, conclude that the evidence was somewhat stronger for the combination of a beta-lactam macrolide in patients with severe CAP than it was for a beta-lactam with a respiratory fluoroquinolone.
1: So, Josh, should patients with suspected aspiration pneumonia receive additional anaerobic coverage beyond standard empiric treatment?
0: So, no, we suggest not routinely adding anaerobic coverage for suspected aspiration pneumonia unless there's evidence of a lung abscess or an empyema. Um, and that's a conditional recommendation with very low quality of evidence. A um, couple of points here. Uh, aspiration is a common event. Indeed, we may think of most pneumonias in some sense an aspiration event in terms of how the pathogens are getting down into the lung. Uh, and we were very concerned about overtreatment uh, for the extended spectrum of pathogens when one invokes the idea of an aspiration pneumonia. Older studies had demonstrated a more frequent isolation of anaerobes in some of these patients, particularly those who've had overt aspiration events, but more recent studies have definitely not supported that. And moreover, there's clearly growing concern about the use of even more extended spectrum antibiotics in this setting, for example, the use of clindamycin or beta-lactam, beta-lactamase combinations specifically to treat for the concern over anaerobes. So Mm -hmm. this is no longer a standard coverage recommendation in our guidelines.
1: Okay, uh, Grant, staying with the inpatient sort of setting, uh, should patients with, uh, with community-acquired pneumonia and risk factors for MRSA and Pseudomonas uh, be treated with extended spectrum antibiotic therapy instead of standard community-acquired pneumonia regimens?
2: Um, so I'll say at the outset that we, we expect this to be one of the uh, perhaps more talked about and controversial recommendations uh, and expect uh, or at least hope that a large amount of research will be um, driven uh, into testing these recommendations. Um, but we do believe that they're in the best interests of, of, of patients. So we recommend abandoning the use of the prior categorization of healthcare associated pneumonia or HCaP to guide selection of extended antibiotic coverage in adults with CAP. That's a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. We uh, recommend clinicians only cover empirically for MRSA or Pseudomonas in adults with CAP if locally validated risk factors for either pathogen are present, and that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. And if clinicians are currently covering empirically for MRSA or Pseudomonas in adults with CAP on the basis of published risk factors but don't have local etiological data, we recommend in continuing empiric therapy while they obtain enough culture data to establish if those pathogens are present and justified continued treatment um, for them uh, after the first few days of empiric treatment. And that's a strong recommendation with low quality of evidence. So to walk through that and and why we've come down on this, there is, uh, HCAP was introduced because of some publications suggesting an alarming increase in MRSA and Pseudomonas as causes of community-acquired pneumonia in a particular group of patients with um, uh, generally uh, high levels of contact with the the, uh, healthcare setting. What has become apparent since the the publishing of those guidelines is in actual fact, the true prevalence of these pathogens is actually very low in most settings in most hospitals. And so there has been an enormous overuse of anti-MRSA and anti-pseudomonas treatment, which has had adverse effects including high rates of antibiotic resistance, uh, increased rates of Clostridium difficile, increased rates of renal dysfunction, uh, and, and so on. So we also recognise, though, that um, what clinicians would like is a really simple guideline that says if A, B and C is present, add NMRSA treatment. If D, E and F is present, add Pseudomonas. And there are a variety of people who've published various scores and um, suggested panels, but the reality is that um, this is a very site-specific decision. The prevalences of these pathogens varies from hospital to hospital, region to region, uh, and it will also vary over time, almost certainly. Uh, So any score that you apply um, has to be validated locally um, regardless, and and almost certainly would not apply very well um, outside of the particular setting in which it's developed. So the only way that clinicians can truly be sure um, of whether the, the, it's a problem locally or not is to have local data, and that is why we fundamentally um, have moved towards saying that if you think MRSA pseudomonas might be present, or you're going to cover for it, you need to do sputum cultures and find out if it's there. Uh, and you cannot, if you're if you're going to be a competent physician looking after community-acquired pneumonia you can't get away from needing to know your local epidemiology and as as, uh, problematic as um, that that may seem we actually think relatively quickly by following our sputum culture guidelines you will establish for yourself uh, whether or not uh, there are risk factors in your local community that that indicate you need to treat MRSA or pseudomonas
1: okay we're doing very well we've uh... We have five more recommendations to go and they're all, all very relevant, or all very important. Josh, the next one is, uh, should adults um, in the inpatient setting be treated with corticosteroids?
0: So this is an area that uh, wasn't even on the horizon, I think, at the time of the last guidelines and uh, engendered a lot of discussion in our group. I'm going to give you the recommendation and some rationale. I may also leave a little time for my, my colleague Grant to speak. He really has been a thought leader in this space. Uh, we recommend not routinely using corticosteroids in adults with non-severe CAP. That's a strong recommendation with high quality of evidence. We suggest not routinely using corticosteroids in adults with severe CAP. That's a conditional recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. And we suggest not routinely using corticosteroids in adults with severe influenza pneumonia. That's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. We did endorse, of course, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations on the use of corticosteroids in adult in patients with CAP who also have refractory septic shock, who are going down that pathway. Um, there have been a couple of uh, high-profile meta-analyses that have indicated a mortality benefit in patients with CAP, severe CAP uh, treated with corticosteroids. I think there's little evidence in support of patients with non-severe CAP, but it's important to recognize that those results are driven by a couple of studies that have some significant concerns, and we've laid out some of our concerns with some of that data and why we're not as convinced it's as robust as has been reported. Uh, Corticosteroids in this setting are not without risk. Uh, There are significant risks in terms of hyperglycemia, secondary infection rates. Uh, In particular, we have seen some case reports and analyses suggesting that in patients with uh, pneumonia due to influenza, mortality rates may be increased on corticosteroids. We're aware of at least one large clinical trial that's been ongoing and are eager to see it, but on balance really felt that this was not a time to pivot and start to routinely recommend corticosteroids in the treatment of outpatients or inpatients with community-acquired pneumonia. I should note that this is not a recommendation against using corticosteroids in adults with other steroid-dependent conditions who may also get admitted with community-acquired pneumonia, for example, COPD, asthma, and the like.
1: Grant, do you have any additional comments?
2: I think Josh covered it really well. Um, we. I believe that the meta-analyses that have been published are fundamentally uh, flawed in their conclusions because the, the, the substrate they're using are, are some significantly flawed studies. Um, I'd note that since the, the guidelines came out and, and remember that we really um, had to stop uh, accumulating literature. Um, around the end of 2017 to get these guidelines done. Uh, Since it's come out, there's been a a randomized study um, published that showed no mortality benefit and higher rates of gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, And we also know that there's a a large study that's yet to be published, the the Veterans Affairs study, which could again inform this debate further. Uh, But fundamentally, we feel that steroids have been uh, started to be overused Um, And this, uh, I guess, is us uh, saying that we don't see an evidence base to support that at present.
1: Okay, the next next two questions uh, relate to influenza. So staying with you, Grant, if patients uh, uh, test positive for influenza, should they be treated with an antiviral therapy?
2: So we recommend uh, that anti-influenza treatments such as Oseltamivir should be prescribed for adults with CAP uh, who test positive for influenza in the inpatient setting. Independent of duration of illness before diagnosis, and that's a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. Uh, we also suggest that anti-influenza treatment be prescribed for adults with CAP who test positive for influenza in, in, the, in the outpatient setting, independent of duration of illness before diagnosis, and that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence. Uh, fundamentally, for us, uh, the, the the data suggests that there is a benefit. Um, which does diminish with time, but there really needs no absolute cutoff uh, for that benefit. And since it's always difficult to know whether patients have had single infection or serial infection, we believe if a patient has pneumonia, so they have radiologically proven pneumonia, um, then uh, they should get uh, anti-influenza therapy if they test positive for influenza.
1: So Josh, very similar question. So if they're positive for influenza, uh, should the treatment include antibacterial therapy?
0: Yeah, so we recommend that standard antibacterial treatment be initially prescribed for adults with uh, clinical and radiographic evidence of CAP who test positive for influenza in the inpatient and outpatient settings. And that's a strong recommendation, though, based on low quality of evidence. And the reason is that we know that bacterial pneumonia can occur concurrently and complicate uh, influenza viral infection. Indeed, bacterial co-infection or superinfection in a patient with influenza is a source of high morbidity and mortality and uh, is really something not to be missed. Um, and therefore, we believe anybody who's being treated for pneumonia, even if they are influenza positive, should at least have initial empiric coverage for the pathogens and follow our recommendations as we've just reviewed for outpatients and inpatients, including as they may apply to patients with suspected risk factors, for NMRSA, especially since we know staph is an important co-pathogen in patients with influenza pneumonia. Um, We recognize that increasingly, uh, particularly with the introduction of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, a lot more pneumonia really is purely viral, and we would like to get to a place where the use of antibacterials is restricted to those patients with bacterial pneumonia. Uh, And so we we recognize that in patients with CAP who have a positive influenza test and no evidence of a bacterial pathogen... um, You could certainly favor early uh, uh, and clinically uh, stabilizing quickly. You could certainly consider discontinuing antibiotics as soon as 48 to 72 hours in that setting. But we certainly continue to endorse upfront treatment for the bacterial pathogens, even when influenza has been documented.
1: So the last two questions are very relevant (coughs) for for all respirologists. Um, And Grant, uh, the first one is, in outpatient and inpatient adults um, who are improving, What's the appropriate duration of antibiotic treatment?
2: So we recommend that the duration of antibiotic therapy should be guided by a validated measure of clinical stability. And we we give some examples of what that would be. Um, And that antibiotic therapy should be continued until the patient achieves stability and for no less than a total of five days. And that's a strong recommendation with moderate quality of evidence. I think um, two aspects to, to, to our recommendation here. The first is we acknowledge that there is Uh, data emerging that that very short courses of antibiotics, even three days, may be sufficient in many patients. But we don't think that that data yet um, has reached a level of um, maturity and proof that we could uh, recommend shorter duration. Uh, We also are aware that in in many areas, much longer uh, uh, durations of antibiotic therapy are given. um, And really, uh, we we can find no evidence that uh, continuing Um, beyond that period post-clinical stability really offers any um, benefit and probably uh, then may contribute to you know antibiotic related side effects so uh, that's why we've gone for we you need to uh, measure or at least assess clinical stability in your patients um, and probably treat for um, five days uh, at a minimum
1: so final recommendation relates to uh, x-rays josh (laughs) if you've got patients who are improving uh, should they have a follow up chest x ray
0: so no in adults with cap whose symptoms have resolved in the typical <clears throat> within 5 to 7 days we suggest not routinely obtaining follow up chest imaging and that's a conditional recommendation with low quality of evidence Th- this is a an old saw that has been ar- with us for a very long time that all patients with pneumonia should have some follow up radiograph within uh, several weeks or several months to demonstrate complete clearing probably primarily driven by the concern that the pneumonia event was really just a signal event of something more concerning underlying in the lung, particularly a malignancy. Um, there really are very limited data on the utility of this strategy. Um, best estimates suggest that maybe the rate of abnormalities is approaches about 5% if you do this routinely, but really no data that that has led to earlier detection of cancers or uh, certainly improved outcomes for patients. Um, and also in the interim, We now have clearer guidelines for routine lung cancer screening in patients who are smokers or recently former smokers, and we believe that this would actually capture many or most of the patients who would otherwise benefit from surveillance radiography after pneumonia. So we no longer recommend it as a routine part of care.
1: So that's the end of the 16 recommendations. Just to finish up, Grant, can you just highlight the important differences between these new guidelines and the previous ATS guidelines in 2007?
2: So I think the fundamental difference uh, is us taking a major step backwards from uh, treating large numbers of patients empirically for MRSA and Pseudomonas um, by abandoning the HCAP criteria. And along with that, um, strongly encouraging clinicians to do sputum cultures if they are treating uh, for these pathogens um, or are concerned uh, that they, uh, enough that they may be present. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, re that um, you've got to know your local epidemiology uh, to adequately be able to treat patients with CAP. We really can't uh, overstress that. Uh, Then I guess the other differences would really be the new things we've added in, uh, particularly the recommendation on steroids, the recommendation on procalcitonin um, would be uh, changes compared to the previous guideline. Most of the recommendations are actually uh, very similar to the previous guideline, which um, in part reflects the lack of high quality evidence that's emerged. um, And throughout the guideline, we we frequently point to areas where we really do need much better quality of evidence. Uh, In part, it's because the pathogens haven't changed uh, that much that um, therapy that was available 20 years ago still um, isn't highly effective. So uh, we we see this as a updated iteration um, and our most important focus was really on uh, trying to drive down inappropriate broad-spectrum
1: antibiotics. Josh, any additional points you'd like to make?
0: Well, to pick on, on that, I think a point of, of, you know, very long-standing frustration in many patients who manage patients with pneumonia is that, that we really have not developed the best point-of-care <laughs> microbiological tests that allow us to have more targeted therapy to de-escalate when possible and to target when necessary. Um, we've, we've struggled with existing microbiological tests. They have generally not proven to help us manage patients effectively. There are a number of tests that are on the horizon. Um, and what we would really like to see is move beyond just testing those new diagnostics, particularly molecular diagnostics, just in terms of their accuracy, but actually tie the development of these tests and their use to improve patient outcomes. That's the real test here in which we can begin to adopt some of these testing strategies into routine care when you can show that they really are impacting treatment decisions in a way that improves patient outcomes.
1: So. Including, I'd like to thank you both for doing this, uh, especially to you, Grant, uh, where it's now quite late into the evening. Um, to the listener, to read the article discussed in the podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Hour of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also uh, subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and, and have a great day.